From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, our guest, Michelle Van Loon, speaks frankly about battling shame and regret. We discuss her recent book, If Only, Letting Go of Regret. Later on the broadcast, our producer, Natasha Alford, examines how white Christians have responded to the grand jury verdict in Ferguson over the past few weeks. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Michelle Van Loon, author of If Only, Letting Go of Regret, published in 2014 by Beacon Hill Press. In the 1980s, Ms. Van Loon was a writer for a children's radio show produced at Chicago's NPR station. She currently works as a communications consultant for faith-based nonprofits. She's a regular contributor to Christianity Today's female-focused blog, Hermeneutics, as well as writing regularly for Pathios.com. Michelle Van Loon, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. I've asked you if you could start us off by uh, reading a, a short passage from the early part of your book. My pleasure. This is from If Only. Few of us walk through life without accumulating regret. At some point... Our past choices collide with the reality that there is no do-over button in life. Those two little words, if only, shackle us to a life that falls short of the freedom and joy promised us by Jesus. Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein, once observed that regret causes us to become cannibals of our own hearts. Unresolved regret is a leech that steals from our present in order to feed the pain of our past, hindering our future in the process. And that's our guest, Michelle Van Loon, reading from her book, If Only, Letting Go of Regret. And so let's begin by getting a definition of what you mean when you use this term, regret. What precisely are we discussing here? Well, we use two words kind of interchangeably. We use regret and remorse And both of them kind of bleed into one another. But for the sake of our conversation and the way that I kind of defined them in the book, regret is our awareness of the consequences of an event or an action. Remorse reflects our sense of moral guilt at the real or perceived failure that followed from that choice. So regret is... Why did I do that? And remorse is the sorrow that follows from the choice itself rather than the distress over the consequences of the choice. So remorse has a more internal kind of moral compass tone to it or nature to it than regret, which is the thing that just chases us through our life and haunts us. Well, and I'm I'm interested in this image that you use of Frankenstein, uh, because in that story, we learn about a creature that's been put together from parts, and the creature has something that's supposed to look like a life, but it's not actually an authentic, proper, full life. And as I as I was reading the book, I thought about that image. Mm-hmm. And uh, is the risk of living with regret the risk that we live a false life, a kind of Frankenstein life? We do. I think regret divides us is as we learn to make accommodations we go through life especially that first half of life and we just zoom from decision to choice we're making we're building we're making decisions there isn't always time to reflect on those choices as we are choosing careers and choosing relationships and making educational choices and the Kind of the way that it accumulates is that at some point, many of us hit a wall. Um, We call it midlife, and there's been a number of researchers that have even 
kind of backed it up to a quarter life crisis where you're dealing with the consequences of your choices, all the things that you could have, would have, should have done instead of where you are, or where you've ended up or where you're going. And um, that that regret divides us. It, In order to function, most of us learn to either shove it aside, put it in a compartment, um, fight it, um, overcompensate for it. We've got all kinds of coping mechanisms for those regrets so that we don't have to actually face them down. Well, and you write very personally in, in the book about about your own experience with regret. And I I, I appreciate that both because it, it personalizes the book, but it also sort of invites the reader to begin to examine their own experiences and their own way of, of looking at their lives and doing the compartmentalization that you've talked about. When you were writing the book, was that a difficult choice to make to sort of put yourself on the page, or was that something that you intended to do from the beginning? Well, like all writers who go into personal stories, I could start with the idea that I will go this far and no further, but the material demanded a little more digging around than I think that I had initially planned, but in order to be able to be true to the topic, true to what my research had shown me, true to what my study, my my time in the Bible had shown me, I didn't really have a choice but to open up a spleen occasionally. But not mine only. There's lots of other stories because at my heart, I am, I'm very drawn to story like we all are. And so... Um, those those stories of regret that once I started looking around, it seemed like they were all around me, perhaps because I'm middle-aged myself. A lot of my peers are middle-aged. I was hearing regret stories the minute I would start to ask somebody, you know, is this something you're struggling with? Is this something you're thinking about? People would open up their spleen a little bit to me, too, so... This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Michelle Van Loon about her recent book, If Only, Letting Go of Regret, published in 2014 by Beacon Hill Press. Now, you mentioned a moment ago uh, the the Bible, and I'm wondering if you would be comfortable uh, speaking to our listeners a little bit about your own religious background and, and sort of how that has factored into your reflection on this subject of regret. Absolutely. Um um, both of my parents are Jewish, or were Jewish. They're both deceased now. And um, when I was in high school, right kind of at the tail end of the Jesus movement of the 70s, I came to faith in Jesus as my Messiah, which caused no end of chaos, confusion, and all kinds of disruption in my relationship with my family, as you can imagine. Um, do I have regret about that? No, um, because where I was going in my life was a path that was filled with all kinds of regret. That kid that was heading toward suicide and doing a lot of drugs and just lots and lots of unhappy um, behavior going on. And so God pulled me back from the brink there. And I think my parents hoped that it would be a fad, um, and that was over 40 years ago. So the blue eyeshadow, the hula hoops, the platform shoes, the bell bottoms, those were fads, but my faith has maintained and sustained. Um, I married in my early 20s, and um, my husband and I got involved in church life and he eventually went to seminary. I'm currently enrolled in seminary part-time as well. And um, through beginning, actually, with my um, early attempts at really, really bad script writing for the children's show that was produced at WBEZ, I eventually learned to write and um, got a little bit better and a little bit better. Lots of rejections shaped that and um, brought me to where I am right now in my life. 
And so. well, thank you for letting us know a little bit about where you came from. I, I didn't realize that you had been raised in a Jewish household. And first of all, I'm sorry for the loss of your parents. Mm-hmm. Um, when you are raising your own children, I believe you have you have three mm-hmm. grown children. Were they exposed at all to the Judaism of your of your childhood? Did they understand sort of your journey of faith, or were they were they just raised purely in a in a Christian context? We felt my husband and I felt that it was really important for them to understand that that was an important core part of their identity, and so even in the church, we always kind of marked time through the Jewish calendar. Um, not always consistently, not always neat and pretty, because a lot of times we were um, the only Jewish people that we knew that were following Jesus, that were trying to put all these pieces together. Um, my my kids were great peacemakers in my relationship with my parents, and um, for that I am very grateful. And so all three of my kids have that understanding that that's their Jewish identity. My husband's mom is also Jewish. So there were two of us that were working in concert to try to help bring that to them as well, bring that to our children. Well, you spoke a little bit about the choice as an author to put yourself into the book, but I'm I'm curious also when you began to write this book, who did you imagine that the audience was going to be? Who did you who did you envision on the other side of that page? Who were you writing for? I think I was writing for the same people that I had been talking to. As so many of my friends were hitting empty nest years and sometimes marriages were coming to an end, sometimes, especially for women, um, without the primary identity of parenting as the kids were gone, um, there was a lot of space in many of my friends' lives for asking those existential, who am I, how did I get here, where am I going, kinds of crises. That wall um, was kind of, I faced it in my own life, and I was hearing it again and again and again. And as I began to see that for many of us, regret was kind of the welcome mat and portal into midlife issues and midlife resolution, I began to search around. I write um, for a couple of different places on midlife issues from time to time. So I was already kind of keyed into that, but then to be able to focus it down and think, who's talking about this and what does it look like spiritually Sometimes I think in the church, we tend to kind of zoom past regret. We're supposed to focus on confession and then walk in faith. And so what to do with those old regrets, particularly if you've walked along in in faith in the church for a long time, there's not always a space to be able to process them if they're long standing. And so... I thought, what would help me? What would help my friends? What would help other people that have hit some kind of wall in their life to move past that wall and be able to put those pieces back together? You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with our guest, Michelle Van Loon, the author of If Only, Letting Go of Regret. You can find out more about the book at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment. If you're just joining us, our guest is Michelle Van Loon, and we're talking about her recent book, If Only, Letting Go of Regret. This is Things Not Seen. So what I hear you saying is that the the sort of core audience that you envisioned were people that were moving through a, a midlife crisis mm-hmm. and, and, and hitting hitting that wall that you've mentioned several times. What does that wall feel like? I mean, I'm sure that every listener has their own sense of that, but I wonder if you could characterize what that wall feels like. That is a great question. I I think what I was hearing from many of my friends, and not just people in my age group, but I am involved in mentoring several younger women in their late 20s and early 30s, and 
that quarter life crisis kind of mirrors and echoes some of the same things that the midlife crisis does for us that um who am i what am i doing and the tricky part about those questions is that sometimes we don't really have the vocabulary to know how to ask them fully and so those questions haunt us at night they wake us up in the middle of the night and there we sit in the darkness trying to make sense of the depression that we might feel or the anxiety that causes us to jump into a bunch of other activities to try to make that who am i and where am i going um set of questions dissipate a little well earlier in the conversation you drew a distinction between regret and remorse mm-hmm. but also in the book you you talk about the difference between regret and shame and i'm wondering if you'd speak a little bit about kind of how you see those two concepts interrelating but also what the differences are there well shame could be its own set of encyclopedias not just a book um and there's there's lots and lots of of great writing and great material on that. Regret definitely can cause us to hide. Shame causes us to hide. Regret and the sense that we have really woofed it somewhere and gotten off track, um, particularly if we don't want to reveal that part of ourselves to the world, we will hide it. And shame can look a lot like great religious performance. It can look like the addiction that is often familiar um, to many of us that if you walk through addiction and recovery, you're dealing with shame issues and resolving some of those shame issues. Um, But regret is that voice of accusation. Shame is the place that we hide so that we don't have to hear that or we or at least we think we don't have to hear it it's there it's pl- the tape is playing maybe very quietly in the racket of all the other things that we do to hide but so am i hearing you correctly that regret is is a voice that comes from inside ourselves and shame is more the fear of the voices of others yes definitely okay, okay. definitely and so I can see how those two things would be related, but I also see why the distinction is important because when we're talking about regret, that's that more existential, I'm not where I should be, mm-hmm. but there's no one else telling you where you necessarily should be. It's it's the internal voice. It's that internal voice that – and sometimes particularly because unprocessed and unresolved regret just – kind of keeps us in a place where we're never quite finishing that sentence. We just know it's not right. But shame silences us from being able to finish asking the question, well, how, how do I fix this? And where am I supposed to go? And how do I live with the consequences of my choices? There's lots of doors that are closed. Most of us know that we cannot go back. We can't, there's no do-over. So how do you live with the fact that there's no do-over? Every once in a while we get a little, a little shot of grace and a little glimpse that there's a full circle kind of nice moment, but we're not the same 18-year-old that chose to drop out of college or the same 25-year-old that married somebody that was abusive or that we made a a poor choice in business, you know, we don't get those do-overs. Is it that regret is visible and shame is invisible, or is that too simple a distinction? Are, is, are there invisible and visible aspects to both of them? I think there's invisible and visible aspects to both of them. And it's hard to compartmentalize and say, well, this is where regret ends and this is where shame begins. This is where remorse stops and regret begins. They... In the emotional and spiritual realm, they all kind of chatter and they form quite a Greek chorus. So, a really good harmony. Mm. So, This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Michelle Van Loon about her recent book, 
If Only, Letting Go of Regret, published in 2014 by Beacon Hill Press. Well, near the end of the book, you make a very strong statement. You say that regret is a thief that steals your life from you. That, when I first read that statement, uh, that seemed very dramatic. And then as I reflected more on it, it seemed, it seemed to me to actually kind of ground out and, and, and speak a certain form of truth. But I'm wondering, as I wrestled with that, uh, I had a, I had a few minutes to sort of think about it, but I'm wondering kind of when you make a statement that is that strong, that regret can, can literally steal your life from you, I'm wondering for sort of what you meant when you first wrote that, but then also has that changed at all? Do you still, do you still want to make that statement as strongly or, or has the statement even perhaps strengthened for you since you made it? I stand by that statement. Um, I did an interview not long ago and someone said, well, I don't have any regrets. I'm, I've am i been very pleased with the way my life has gone, and I just I don't have any regrets at all. What a great gift to feel that way. But even if the individual person doesn't have regrets, most everybody else in our world at some level is either dealing with regret or avoiding dealing with them, um, you know, kind of embracing the message of culture that, you know, you shouldn't regret, just grab what belongs to you, your choices are your choices, and you should be empowered by those choices. That is not actually, I think what I'm seeing, what I've read in the research, particularly as people get to the end of their life and um, hospice nurses, um, people that are dealing with elderly and aging issues will say that regret for many people is the, the thing that affects health, affects relationships, um, changes the, the the final end stage dying and living process, um, and it can completely steal and haunt in the worst kind of Mary Shelley cannibalization kind of way what goes on in a person's life. Regret can steal your life from you if it's not addressed. Well, and you mentioned a moment ago the the impact of culture, and does our culture, and in particular, I want to ask about, let's say, American religious culture, or maybe even American Christian culture. Does does our culture, does American Christianity, does American religious life put an undue burden on people to pretend that everything's okay and cover it over? In almost every quarter, I think people would rise up and say, amen and yes. And that certainly complicates the matter for those that are sitting in the dark at three in the morning trying to figure out who they are and how they got there and where they're going to go next. Um, We like happy endings and we like a nice arc in a conversion story that goes, I once was lost, and now I'm found. And there is no comma or clause or wrestle either in between the once was lost and now I'm found. And there's nothing much that follows the now I'm found. So being found is the beginning of a journey for most people, but we don't often speak about it that way in the church, particularly in terms of dealing with issues like regret. It's interesting. Um, when you were giving me your answer, it, it brought to mind uh, uh, a series of novels by Frank Peretti, who writes the This Present Darkness series right. and things like that. And what what always uh, I chuckled about whenever I would read Frank Peretti is 
that there was always a young character who was kind of a punk in the book mm-hmm. and he was on the edge and he was anti-authoritarian, usually a he, mm-hmm. and he had piercings and spiked up hair. And then at some point towards the middle of the book, that particular character finds Jesus and suddenly the piercings come mm-hmm. out and the hair becomes normal. Mm-hmm. And so there's a real narrative, I think, that says you know, once you are found, as you said, mm-hmm. there's really not a story after that other than you live happily ever after. Right. But your experience and the experience that you write about in the book is that that's not always the case. We oversell the happily ever after, I think, in American religious culture, particularly in the evangelical world that I've been a part of for the last 40 years. Um, and that overselling diminishes the language of discipleship, of following Jesus, of picking up a cross, of being able to understand suffering and loss. And that the, that language is a part of, I think, what I, I tried to bring into some of the discussion of some t- of the kinds of regret that we face, because being able to bring language to people that haven't always felt free to be able to use it um, or hear it is was one of my goals. Well, in a moment ago, you, you mentioned some of the people that you've interacted with who will make the statement that they don't feel any regret. And mm-hmm. you said, what a wonderful gift that is. But I wonder, could you flesh that out for us? What If we were to imagine what a life free of regret would look like, uh, have you ever really met someone who is free of regret? And what 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 would be the markers of that? I think that free of regret is not denial of regret, um, which is what I heard in the question that I was asked a few weeks ago, which was, that doesn't happen to me. I followed all the rules. That was that kind of language came in that context. Uh, a person who's resolved their regrets is in a very different place. It isn't a matter of that they, they've never had them. It's that they are at peace and there's an expansiveness to them and a, and a grace for themselves that extends to grace with others that um, is less judgy and more um, more loving. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Michelle Van Loon. And we're talking about her recent book, If Only, Letting Go of Regret. This is Things Not Seen. In the appendix to your book, you are very careful to spell out some different types of counselors to whom a believer might turn when they're dealing with grief and with regret and with remorse. And you 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 use some technical terms. You talk about nuthetic counselors, and I hope that I'm pronouncing that correctly, and then also as distinguished from Christian counselors and then also distinguished from secular counselors. And I wonder if you might just take a moment for our listeners to draw out these distinctions between these different approaches to the, the practice of counseling. I added the appendix to kind of offer the, the distinctions because – particularly in the church, sometimes the language is sloppy. And so we say Christian counselor, but there's a camp that is the new ethic counseling that focuses on just taking Bible verses and giving them to the person and then um, kind of asking them to just apply them in good military bootstrapping oneself up, you know, into, uh, you know, being able to march in formation once again. Those counselors are not um, covered by insurance. They haven't had the same kind of training that um, a person that's been through a counseling program, counseling training at a recognized university would be. Um Christian counseling um, is just counseling that is done by a person who has a Christian testimony, but the focus is that they've been through training in a recognized university setting and that they're often 
on people's insurance plan. The focus is counseling. The adjective Christian just describes the person. But even a person who chooses to see a counselor who doesn't maintain the Christian in front of their counseling, they're there to be able to support you in your journey. They're not there to evangelize you to toward a particular position. They're there to help you untangle the tangle that you're in. And so I wanted to be able to offer people a little bit of clarity if they find a, a book for a deeply entrenched problem or uh, a tape that is playing constantly in your head that is saying, woulda, coulda, shoulda, if only you had done this or that. Um, Sometimes you need a lot more than a book to be able to get that untangled. And so I wanted to be able to offer people some resources if all this book did was just kind of stir some things up. So what I'm hearing you saying is that a person who comes from a faith background might think that the right approach would be simply to be driven to the scriptures and to be given kind of drill sergeant-like a, a series of mantras almost to meditate upon. And the the suspicion might be that a person who is a counselor who doesn't uh, wear their faith on their sleeve would never be able to relate to a person of faith. But what I'm hearing you saying is that there's a wide spectrum, and within licensed counseling, uh, there are definitely counselors who are not overtly religious who can hear with sympathy and be effective to uh, believers, and just because a person is is throwing Bible verses at you doesn't mean that they'll be necessarily an effective counselor. Am I hearing that correctly? Exactly, exactly. The, The key is to be able to get coached out of where you're stuck. And so um, scripture can definitely do that, but it isn't always the only thing. We need the community of other people around us. It may be that your stuckness may benefit from um, a spiritual director, a really gifted pastor who has got a strong counseling either gift or some additional training, but you may need to take it up another level, um, particularly if you can't get unstuck from that place of, of grief and just hearing the accusation that you've gotten it wrong and you've wasted your life. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Michelle Van Loon, She's the author of If Only, Letting Go of Regret, published this year by Beacon Hill Press. You can find out more about the book at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Michelle Van Loon about her recent book, If Only, Letting Go of Regret, published in 2014 by Beacon Hill Press. Well, you mention in the book uh, several instances when you've dealt with your own regret and struggled with your own shortcomings. And I was wondering, has working on this book been helpful with those struggles? Did putting the words on paper help your own recoveries from regret? Mm -hmm. Well, writing confessionally certainly has that aspect, but I was actually surprised at how little it had budged me from the work that I'd already done previous to that. I think walking through that process um, in my own life of coming to terms with some of those losses, seeing a counselor at one point, um, being involved in listening prayer with others, and um, just some of the intentional and intense spiritual friendships that I'd had where people had the right to speak into my life and ask me those questions, um, that all of those things positioned me to be able to write with some distance and disconnect. Um, so it wasn't quite the, the purge fest that it 
might sound like, and I'm grateful for that. Um, it helps to be able to write from a little bit of perspective rather than being in the process and kind of purging on paper. Although there was, you know, there were definitely some moments of that for sure. And a moment ago, you mentioned that uh, you've gotten some feedback about the book and that people, mm -hmm. you, you mentioned that the people have, have sort of seen themselves mirrored in some of the anecdotes from the book. But I'm wondering if you'd be willing to sort of share some of the other reaction that you've gotten as you've been promoting the book since it uh, was published this past summer. Probably the the um, response that has been the most gratifying is um, hearing from people that they've gotten to a certain point and they've had to stop, um, which, you know, if you write a whole book, you kind of want people to read the whole book um, rather than get stuck somewhere. But for me, it's a marker that they've gotten to a place and now they need to deal with whatever it was that kind of surfaced as they were reading. So for me, that was actually very encouraging and gratifying. Um, I've, I've gotten um, thank yous, and that's also uh, – to the glory of God. I'm grateful for those thank yous. And I'm grateful to hear that people are using the book in groups, Bible study groups or book groups to start some conversations that really need to be held. Because sometimes just voicing it and finding out you're not the only one is a very powerful thing. It, it always is when you hear, I'm not the only one. I you know, somebody else is struggling with that as well. Are there plans to to do further projects to follow up on this on this trajectory, or is this a one-off and you'll now move on to other things? Well, my next project is actually completely different. Um, I'll be writing a book about the Jewish feasts and the Christian calendar that'll be released in 2016. That kind of brings together pretty much my whole life in a completely different way. I'm really grateful that I'll have the opportunity to write that book. But I would definitely like to come back to the the themes of grief and loss. There, Like I said, there there's a lot out there on grief. There's a lot out there on shame. But I think there's new ways to be able to offer people to, to think and talk about these things that can help reconnect them with God, reconnect them with themselves, all those broken pieces of themselves, and with others in their, particularly in the faith community. So, Well, for our listeners out there who might be feeling trapped in their own distress or deep in the well of regret, what advice or words of encouragement would you give to them as they begin their own journey towards recovery? I think particularly in the faith community, I keep using that phrase, but um, we we use words a lot like that God redeems, God forgives, God heals. We hear that language, but it can feel very external to us, particularly if we're divided up inside and protecting with with shame and or overachievement or whatever we're doing, those those um, places of regret. But those words are reality. They can be your reality. They have been my reality. I'm not all there. I'm not, I don't have it all fixed, and I, I don't have it all together. And I think you would definitely get that reading um, the book. But um, I am grateful that as those things have come to the light before God, I've seen that he's good to be able to touch those broken places with truth and start reconnecting them. And as he does, he, he has reconnected me with himself in a, in a much more profound and deep way. And that re, that's, that's the promise for all of us. That's what redemption looks like. Well, Michelle Van Loon, I've enjoyed very much our conversation. Thank you for speaking to us today. Thank you so much for having me. 
Our guest today has been Michelle Van Loon. She's the author of If Only, Letting Go of Regret, published in 2014 by Beacon Hill Press. In the 1980s, Ms. Van Loon was a writer for a children's radio show produced for Chicago's NPR station. She currently works as a communications consultant for faith-based nonprofits. She's a regular contributor to Christianity Today's female-focused blog, Hermeneutics, as well as writing regularly for Pathios.com. After the break, we hear from Natasha Alford about the response of white Christian leaders to the recent events in Ferguson and New York City. We'll be back in a moment. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on our website or on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes store. And while you're there, we'd love it if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's actually unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. And thank you, as always, for listening. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. If you're on Twitter, please take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. And one more plug. If you haven't yet discovered our Daily Religion Moments podcasts, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we have them all archived at our website. So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore the whole catalog, just like you were traveling back in time. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. The entire country has been caught up in the conversation about police tactics these past few months. The events in Ferguson, Missouri, and then New York City, where two black men died at the hands of white police officers, sparked debate and public protest. And these only increased as grand jury verdicts came back with refusals to indict the officers involved. Despite weeks of taking to the streets and early expectations that the protests would blow over, the public discontent has remained active from news cycle to news cycle, with no clear end in sight. Our producer, Natasha Alford, explores one aspect of the public response, the voices of white evangelical and mainline Christians. Eric Garner's final moments are seared into the American psyche. What started as a confrontation for allegedly selling bootleg cigarettes ended in death for the father of six, 11 cries of not being able to breathe as a group of police officers take him down, and the final breath before he goes silent were all caught on cell phone video, then shared virally. The no-indictment decision on the part of a Staten Island grand jury has stirred the conscience of the country, calling thousands to gather on the streets, protesting that black lives matter and justice must be served. One noteworthy group of people speaking out is white Christian church leaders. Sunday morning has long been called the most segregated hour in the country. It's when a tale of two Americas is most evident. Segregated housing patterns only reinforcing segregated faith experiences. And with that segregation, often is a gap in understanding of the experiences of other groups. But in the wake of the grand jury decision, white church leaders are stepping out and speaking up. Religion News Service reports that Russell Moore, president of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, released a statement in the wake of the no-indictment decision. The following is a clip of his podcast. Some of these issues are going to be complicated. And some of these particular, we're going to have, when it comes to Ferguson, people are going to have different understandings of, well, uh, you know, do, do you think that what, what should the grand jury have done and how should they have handled this? There are going to be some different interpretations of this. But, folks, when we've got police officers killing a man on video with a chokehold, can we not say there, there are still some problems in American society when it comes to race? And if we can't say that, if the Church of Jesus Christ cannot say that 
you know, we, we don't have all the answers for how to fix the systemic structures, but what we do know is that we in our churches ought to be grieving over the fact that we are siloed away from one another into white churches and black churches and Latino churches far too often. And that one of the ways that we ought to embody the gospel of Jesus Christ is by congregations that love one another and that go beyond carnal divisions and instead signal that all of these divisions broken down so that our identity is in Christ. And Todd Pruitt, lead pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrison, Virginia, blogged an article called Six Ways Christians Should Respond to Eric Garner's Death. He writes... As a white man in America, I have no idea what it's like to be a racial minority. It serves no good purpose to pretend that America is 1960s Mississippi, but neither does it serve the truth to pretend that we are not still haunted by the sins and consequences of racism. But not every voice elevating the fight for racial justice has been warmly received. We have to to acknowledge that something is is wrong. Russell Moore, president of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. That something is wrong uh, with uh, with the system at this point and something has to be done. And uh, frankly, I, I'll just tell you, nothing is more controversial in American life than this issue of whether or not we're going to be reconciled across racial lines. I mean, I have seen some responses uh, coming after simply saying in light of Ferguson that we need to talk about why it is that white people and black people see things differently. And I said what we need to do is to have churches that come to together and know one another and are knitted together across these racial lines. And I have gotten responses and seen responses that are right out of the White Citizens Council uh, material uh, from 1964 in my home state of Mississippi. Uh, seeing people saying there is no gospel issue involved with racial reconciliation. Are you kidding me? There is nothing that is clearer in the New Testament than the fact that the gospel breaks down the dividing walls that we have between one another. The gospel is what turns us away from hating our brother. Serene Jones is president of the Union Theological Seminary, a progressive-leaning school in Manhattan. She is also white. Jones tweeted recently, The state-sanctioned violence perpetrated against young people of color in this country is abominable. Hashtag Ferguson. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. Jones received a slew of comments and attacks calling her statement racist and an abuse of her platform. Those brave enough to wade into the waters of race conversations in America can find themselves standing in murky territory, alone and misunderstood. It harkens the days of America's early white religious allies, the abolitionists of the 1800s. They were bold enough to not only decry slavery, but to call it sin, and many were punished for it. Leaders like William Lloyd Garrison and Theodore Weld called out racism at a time when it was economically beneficial and politically expedient to support it. Tim Stafford of Christianity Today writes that abolitionist message of slavery as sin was so unpopular because it, quote, rankled in America full of self-important virtue as God's darling. But as always, there were a radical minority who spoke out against segregation. According to the book Christians in Racial Crisis, a study of Little Rock's ministry, two of the four ministers who accompanied black students integrating Central High School were white clergy members. The book found that the majority of the 29 Little Rock clergy interviewed were integrationists, but only eight were active. 16 were inactive, caving to conflicting social pressures. On the day Eric Garner was laid to rest in Brooklyn, New York, an organist played the song, God Is. For white religious allies in the growing movement for racial equality in America's justice system, their greatest weapon may just be the word and testament of who God is. 
The day news broke that there would be no charges against the officer in the Eric Garner case, Russell Moore of the Southern Baptist Convention tweeted this. A state that can choke a man to death on video for selling cigarettes is not Romans 13 justice. Romans 13.4 reads, For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Until Americans of every color, class, and faith can say this without hesitation, there may just be work to do. And every Christian, regardless of their background, can be called to do it. Our producer at large, Natasha Alford, is a multimedia journalist with a background in education. She's a graduate of Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism and works as a reporter in Rochester, New York. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ's Navy Pier Studios overlooking beautiful Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop and in Rochester, New York. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.